Well, good morning. Uh, if you want to turn uh, to First Peter, we're going to continue uh, through our series there. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 1 this morning. But I just want to remind us of where we're at, because last week we had Russ come out, and Russ preached to us from Hebrews chapter uh, 12. 1 to 3, and those words in that text have just been, just been at me all week. And then when I started, uh, I should say that week, and then when I started the studying for this text, it was just screaming at it again that it's so relatable. Uh, the book of Hebrews, the book of First Peter, just kind of tying together. And so we're actually going to read a couple of things from uh, Hebrews this morning, or oh, I'm going to read that to you, actually. You, you don't need to flip there. Uh, but w- just to kind of set the table so that we understand what has been happening. So if you are, uh, are new this morning, or you've missed a few weeks, kind of here's what's happened in First Peter thus far. As Peter's been focusing uh, pretty much the whole book on this idea of suffering and suffering well. Uh, all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter the context, all of us are going to suffer at times. And Peter talks about sometimes we're going to suffer for our own foolish decisions that we make. That's just a reality of life. But sometimes we're going to suffer uh, unjustly uh, for the name of Christ. And, and we live in this country where it is currently uh, it's free. We can come here freely and we can worship God. And it is a great privilege and a great blessing. But many parts of the world, they, they have to meet together even in groups of three or four in secret. And they, it's just, it's illegal. And so they get persecuted in a lot more uh, clear way than we necessarily do. But that, is, that time is coming. Uh, that time, the scriptures tell us one thing basically is it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. There will be times of revival, there'll be times of excitement, there'll be times where many come to faith, but overall, the narrative of Scripture shows us that before Jesus comes back, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to publicly declare Christ. And so, it's important for us to read this, because while we may not be suffering uh, the same way that many of our brothers and sisters are around the world, we ought to prepare ourselves for that, because it is coming. And if we prepare ourselves for it, we will far uh, it'll be far more likely that we'll respond in a way that we are supposed to. For the last uh, number of weeks as we've gone through this, Peter has been showing that we can endure suffering, not just uh, for the sake of suffering, but because of what Christ did for us and the example that he set. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, which is what Russ preached on last week, uh, there was this verse, verse 2, where it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Before that, in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer makes a clear distinction for us, and and this is good, this is important, because... um, as Russ mentioned last week, is in chapter 12, he talks about this idea that there's this cloud of witnesses, that there's, there's this example set for us of all these men and women uh, in the past, in the Old Testament, that, that lived for God despite what it cost them, despite the difficulties and the opposition. But more importantly than that is that we have a Savior, we have a Christ, a Redeemer, who has done the exact same. And so in chapter 4, 14 to 16 of Hebrews, the writer says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet 
without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is those comforting words are written for us so that we understand that Jesus on this earth understands everything that we could possibly go through because he went through worse. And that ought to give us comfort. Because it's not just this unrealistic God standing up in heaven looking down at us going, you should be able to do this. And we're sitting there going, but we can't. And it's not fair. Now we can look at this and we can go, we have a high priest. We have Jesus who went through and lived this perfect life. Yet he suffered the way that we suffer. And he suffered so much more extremely than that. And it doesn't matter what our suffering is. If your suffering is rejection, well, Christ was rejected in his greatest moment of need. If your suffering is uh, kind of more some of the physical things, well, you see lots of times where Jesus uh, went without certain things. We read about where he, uh, he fasted for 40 days, which just for interest's sake is 40 days is the actual peak day where you no longer uh, can fast and your body starts to consume itself. Jesus took everything very kind of extreme, very little. He was showing us, he was preparing us that he has gone through it. And because he has gone through it, we can now approach that throne of grace. We can, we can approach the Father even though we have sin in our hearts, sin in our lives because of the example that Christ has done and we can find forgiveness and we can find salvation. What a huge, huge blessing that is. And so Peter is reminding us that we have those examples uh, sorry, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that we have those examples. And so Peter's saying we can suffer and we can suffer well. We can suffer for the name of Christ and we can endure. Why can we endure? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, we're going to persevere in our, our own faith. We're going to grow. We're going to come to maturity. And that's, that's just reality in every aspect of life. Is if we want to grow in a certain area, we ask God, would you, would you, would you help me in this area he gives us opportunities for that to happen. I, uh, I've been on a no-hockey diet now for uh, about 10 days because I, I play twice in one week, which is not a good thing ever. Um, but leading up to that and leading through Peter, I was kind of asking, God, would you, would you mature me in my faith? And then I got really angry because I got scored on a lot of times. And I had, to, I had to walk away and I had to go, I can't go back because, at least not yet, because I didn't, do the very thing that God led me to because I asked him to, I responded negatively. That's what happens in our lives. We ask God, God, would you help me mature? And he goes, all right, the road's going to get rocky. The road's going to get uncomfortable. And how we respond to those things is going to say a great deal about our perseverance. And I have to confess my perseverance, at, at least in hockey these last couple of weeks, were not good. My attitude needed to be uh, adjusted. My, and, and sometimes if if you know your own self, sometimes you know that means you need to take yourself out of that situation before. Calm down, regroup, refocus, remind yourself it's just a game. I, I'm really good at this with golf now. I, it used to be horrible. How many golf? Golf's easy, right? Until you go lots, and then it's super hard, right? You go once a year, and you're like, man, that was pretty good. You go once, you're pretty good. You go the second time, you're like, oh, I think I'm getting better. And then the rest of the season, you get worse. You develop all these bad habits together. Well, I got a, a, a wise piece of advice that, that I use in golf, but for some reason, sometimes I, I can't use elsewhere, is, Greg, you're not good enough to get upset. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable. Nobody's paying me to golf, though if anybody wants to, I'm willing to listen. We go through difficulties, and, and maybe some of those things, right? That, that's really not suffering for the name of Christ. But it is uh, going through opposition and trial and difficulty to mature us and to bring us to a stronger of faith. So let's read here chapter 4, uh, 1 to 11, and then we'll get into this. So Peter says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now there's a couple of uh, interesting verses in here that we need to clarify because it, uh, on a surface value, they seem to say something uh, that would kind of disagree with what our experience has taught us. And, and so we're going to deal with that. But in verse, the first in verse 1, it says again, so since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So we are to arm ourselves the same way of thinking that Christ thought when he suffered. Well, how did Christ suffer? What did, what did he think? And so again, that's where we go back to Hebrews 12, and it says again, uh, I'm going to read this again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Christ endured suffering with joy, and we are called to do the exact same thing. When we think about the realities of, of what that means for us, is it gets really messy. Uh, James says, right, to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because the testing of all of that produces, at the end, maturity. We grow in our faith because of that. And so the joy is not in the suffering or in the pain or in the hurt. The joy is in what that will produce if we're obedient to Christ. And so we will mature if we obey. And so here's the crazy part for me. We're going to suffer regardless. We can either suffer needlessly by being disobedient and get nowhere in the process and yet continue to suffer, or we can find purpose in that suffering by realizing that we can grow and we can mature if we're obedient to Christ. You're not going to suffer any more or any less on either end of that. And sometimes we think of it in the sense of, well, well, if we come to Christ, then, then he'll give us purpose and everything, and so we won't have to suffer. But Scripture is clear that that's not true. 
Jesus promises us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He gives us the big picture or the, long, uh, the long-term view of that is that don't worry when the world attacks you and when the world maligns you because I've overcome this world and one day when you die, you will pass from death to life and then all will be made new. That's where we're leading to and that's where we're going to. So how are we going to suffer? Well, we're going to suffer with joy, not because joy not because it's joyful in the moment, but because we choose to look beyond the circumstance, beyond that moment of pain, and look at the big picture of it, look in the long term, and say, this will lead me closer to Christ. And that is worth it. And if we don't think that's worth it, then perhaps we don't know Christ the way that we say that we do. So then he says this, So arm yourselves that way with this joy, with this purpose in your suffering. Then he says this, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, show of hands. How many of you have ceased from sin? Please don't put your hand up. Uh, All we're doing is condemning ourselves if we do that. Um, Better question, no, don't don't do this. Don't raise your hands, but just ask the question, is how many of you have ceased from sin in the last six hours? Uh, Sunday morning is not always the easiest morning, right? Even, even if we get an extra hour of sleep. Sometimes, you know, the kids don't want to go to school. I remember my parents were very smart, and now looking back, I realize all these things more, is uh, I lived in a time where uh, we had normal cereal for breakfast, like, like, like original Cheerios and Shreddies and Rice Krispies. Anybody understand what I'm talking about here? Not Cocoa Puffs and all these things? Anyway, so Sunday morning, that was the deal, is we, if we got up in time, we got to have like cereal with sugar on it. It's like, well, that's the best day of the week. Now I realize it was all manipulation, but hey, that's okay. Is mom and dad gets you there, that's the important thing. But there's all kinds of times uh, in our lives where the pressure, the stress, the schedule, whatever it might be, and our attitudes are less than Christ-like if we want to say it generously. And so how can, how can Peter say, if you suffered, uh, then you've ceased from sin? Well, I think there's kind of two interpretations here that, that theologically are sound, though I think one... Uh, leads to kind of a better understanding of this text. Uh, so the first one is this. is in Romans 6, uh, and you don't have to flip it, I'm just going to kind of summarize this, but in Romans 6, Paul talks about this. He says, if you have died with him, that's Christ, then you will live with him. And he who has died has been justified from sin. It's all about being identified with Christ in his death through baptism, uh, which, which is why this is a popular view because of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, in Peter. Through baptism, coming alive no longer to live for sin. So we have died to sin. Sin no longer holds any dominion over you. Once you come to faith in Christ, sin no longer controls you. Now the Holy Spirit does because you have submitted to him. So that, I think, is theologically sound and is true, but I don't think that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. So I'm going to quote from uh, commentator Thomas Schreiner. He says this, uh, Peter's point is that when believers are willing to suffer, that the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. Although believers will never be totally free from sin in this life, when believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, they show that their purpose in life is not to live for their own pleasures, but according to the will of God and for his glory. So maybe in a better vernacular, uh, John Piper narrows it down to kind of this sense. 
This refers to our own readiness to suffer for Jesus. If you have said that you are willing to suffer for Christ and not live the way the world wants or expects you to, since Christ suffered, you have the same readiness to suffer. You don't join the others in the same flood of debauchery because you have ceased from that life. The reason I think this is more consistent is because as we look forward, he now gives the example of in the past, this is how you lived and this is what you did. And now when you're around those people, they continue to do those things, but you have stepped back from that. And not only do they not understand why you stepped back from that, they malign you for it. And perhaps you've kind of understood this or, or experienced this. And, and, and I think I think we all deal with this readily. The reality is just that we think that it only happens with kids. We teach our kids in school, don't give in to, come on somebody, thank you, don't give in to peer pressure, right? That's what we teach. Don't just do what other people are doing because they're doing it. But somewhere along the lines, we've tricked ourselves into thinking that's uniquely an adolescent issue, not an adult issue, but that is totally an adult issue. I'm going to give you a very silly example. All my examples really single out just how much I have to learn. But this week, uh, there was this little Halloween uh, uh, assembly at school. And so all the kids were all in their dress-up costumes and the teachers and everyone was taking pictures and everything. And it was all fine. And we're sitting at the back, all the parents kind of along. Anybody was there? Anybody was there? Excellent. So nobody can attest to what I did or didn't do. Um, no, so the principal kind of goes up after everyone's gone, and, and she kind of made a statement that I think caught everybody off guard. It certainly caught me off guard. Is, is she said, okay, parents, everyone stand up, and we want to clap for you. And nobody stood up. And what was my first reaction? Not to stand up. That would have been the good thing. I'd be proud of myself then. No, my reaction was this. Right? Nobody else did. And so I didn't, because my immediate response was, I don't want to look out of place. I want to blend in. I want to make sure that I do what everyone else does, right? And obviously, that's not a, that wasn't a big moral quandary. I didn't have to go home and repent of that, but maybe I should have. I don't know. But in, 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 thinking of, oh, sorry, in thinking of this kind of reality is there are decisions in front of me all throughout the day where I respond based on how everyone else responds around me, not based on what I think is right or wrong how far we have to grow and, and how naive it is to think that we don't go through peer pressure. Is, there's this deep desire within us. It's crazy because it doesn't make sense. Is there's a deep desire to not stand out because we don't want to be singled out, and yet there's a deep desire in us to have a life that matters and, and have purpose and meaning. But we can't have both of those at the same time. It doesn't work. See, what... A disciple of Christ means is to stand out apart from the culture. We, another place in Scripture says we're to live in the world but not be of the world. We are called to, to live with people who do things, as it says here uh, in, verses, in verse 3, things that we look at and we go, that's maybe how I used to live, but this is no longer how I live because now I've submitted to Christ and this is now how I'm going to live. And it says that they won't understand that. We sang a song earlier, My Savior, My God, where the writer of the, 
section of the old hymn that it's taken from. It says, you found it strange, so once did I before I knew my Savior. Is before we've come face to face with Christ, the things that Christians do make no sense. They're crazy. Why would we deprive ourselves of some of these, these enjoyments that the world says that they are? Well, because we believe that we will be held to account. We, will, we believe that there is a God who created us and he gets to choose what's right and wrong and we don't. And so we're going to submit to him in that. How do you make that make sense to someone who doesn't even think that God is real? You can't. And so we will be maligned. We will be made fun of. We will uh, be tried to convince to join in with this peer pressure. But Peter reminds us, he says in verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Paul says it differently in Romans twelve nineteen, 19. Um, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy here. And he says this, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Is we need to be reminded not to try and convince those that don't know Christ that they should do the things that we do. That's a backwards way to come to salvation. They don't need to fix their life so that they understand who Christ is. They need to come to Christ so that Christ can fix their lives. And so for us to say, well, they shouldn't, and that's not fair, and that's not right, and I hope they get what's coming to them, is all trying to put ourselves in the place of God as judge and to say, actually, I know what's right. God doesn't. I'm going to judge, and I'm going to repay. And we're not called to do that. We're called to live with these people who that, or, or who that live in this way, and yet we are called to love them unceasingly so that we might show them through our actions. Peter said this several times, that we would put to silence the talk of, ignorish, of ignorant people. That our actions would show the love that we have for Christ and as a byproduct for them. It's not supposed to be about taking out your Bible and smacking someone over the head with it so that they'll repent. And sometimes that's how we treat it. Don't, don't, don't. Do, do, do. We're called to love. We're called to love so clearly that we show them that there is a better way to live than to just simply live for ourselves. And clarification on verse 6. It says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the same way, or the way that God does. And so sometimes people bring this back to kind of our last text uh, at the end of chapter 3, 19 to 21 there, which, uh, which was kind of a confusing text that we walked through that week. And I don't have time to go through that now, but it, it is on the website for you. And, and so some people look at that and try and say that that partners with that. And then that's why the one idea, uh, I gave kind of two different interpretations of that uh, a couple weeks ago. And that's why the one idea is pretty strong. But I think that's just making the text say things it doesn't and trying to piece things together. Uh, sometimes we already have our mind made up. And then we try and take things to prove our minds. And, and I think that this is a case where that can happen. This verse, I think, is very simple, very straightforward. Uh, I'm going to quote another commentator here just because he says it so clearly. He says, Given this immediate context, those who are dead refers to Christians to whom the gospel was preached when they were alive, but now they have since died. 
This fits with the meaning of dead in verse 5. Even though believers will experience physical death, believers who have died in the spirit the, the way God does, that is, they live in heaven now, they will live as well as the resurrection when Christ returns. So, so he's simply saying that this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who have, who have died already, is so that they would come to faith in Christ, so that they would understand how to live and how to honor God. And I think we sometimes twist that verse into trying to make it more complicated than it is. Then he starts kind of a new section here, and this is interesting. Therefore, the end of things is at hand. So, the end of all things. The end of all things. When was Peter written? Like 2,000 years ago, not quite. So how can Peter say that the end of all things is at hand? Uh, it kind of seems like, well, Peter's wrong. The end of things weren't at hand because it didn't end. And so we can look at that and we can argue with that, or we can understand that if Scripture is true, if all of it, according uh, to Timothy, uh, excuse me, to Paul, written to Timothy, is that all scriptures God breathed, all of it is inerrant, all of it is from him. The Holy Spirit wrote it through the lives of people. If that is the case, then what is he saying here? Well, if you look back on, on several different places in scripture, this kind of vernacular was common in the New Testament church. Uh, even in this book, in chapter 1, verse 20, Peter says here, in these last times, in Acts chapter 2, uh, He's referencing the prophet Joel uh, at Pentecost, and it says that in these last days, and that was what Joel was talking about with Pentecost. Well, that's 2,000 years ago. Hebrews 1 talks about it in this way. In these last days, in, in my reading this morning in 1 John chapter 2, it says the exact same thing as in these last times. And so if we interpret that, that Jesus is going to come back imminently, I think we miss the point. And I've talked about this lots, but there are many people who try really hard to prove that all the things uh, that need to happen have happened, and so Christ is going to come back, and then they put some kind of finite date on it. All that does is ignore what the Gospels say, where Jesus says, nobody knows the time. Nobody knows the day or the hour. In fact, Jesus says it this way, it's not even the Son knows, but only the Father who is in heaven. The angels, nobody, nobody knows. God has ordained it to be at one time. And so for us to try and figure out that time or to look at this and go, well, well, it, it can't happen now because this hasn't happened or, or it seems like, uh, here's the, the big famous one, is every time a new blood moon comes up, there's a whole slew of people that are like, well, this means Jesus is coming back. And it's just making the scripture say things it doesn't intend to say. All that's happening here is it's saying that all the major things in salvific history have now taken place, i.e., Jesus came to the earth. He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins on the cross. He was raised to life so that we would not uh, have to die eternally, but now death has been conquered, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. These are the key uh, salvific history moments into understanding what salvation is. And so all the writers are saying is at any time Christ could return. So live like it. That's Peter's point. And I think, I think we're probably all guilty of not living this way. Sometimes we can get lulled into a sense of complacency or just this is normal. This is just normal life. Tomorrow I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to work. 
going to accomplish these things. I'm going to come home. Here's what I'm going to do. And we write on the calendar months in advance of all the things that are happening. And that's just life. And, and that's been our life for however long you've been alive. And so that's normal. But we are exiles, Peter's reminded us over and over and over. And this world is not our home. And so we need to look at it with that, I guess those kind of glasses on and see it that while I am here, I will do this or this. Jesus says, right? Um, He says it in a way that if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Right? Recognizing that he's in control, recognizing that he has a time and, and a date and a specific moment in history planned for when Christ will return. But that's for him to know, not for us. We ought to live like every day might be our last. And I think if we did that, that would give us a bigger sense of urgency for those who we love desperately that don't know Christ. But I think because we assume tomorrow's going to come, that sense of urgency is taken away. And this is why you have uh, certain things like the guy who uh, ends up having a heart attack at 45 years old all of a sudden changes the way he eats because all of a sudden it got real. It got serious. All of a sudden, his life became finite and he recognized that. Nothing actually changed except his perspective. And the same with us. is The end of things is at hand. So he says, so be self-controlled and sober-minded. One commentator, uh, commentator that I read uh, about this explained it this way. He said, anything um, that takes place of Christ in our life is a way of us becoming drunk on it is we're not sober-minded anymore. We're being impaired and we're consuming our mind and our focus on that rather than on what's good and what's right. And if you notice what it says here too, is he says, so therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That happened a couple of weeks ago uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of chapter three, or sorry, in the middle of that, is the same idea, for the sake of your prayers, is simply this, is how am I supposed to pray for the things that God wants me to pray for if I'm not focused on the things that God's doing? Have you ever noticed that sometimes our prayer life becomes very, very self-focused? God, I need. God, would you make this happen? God, I want. God, life would be a lot easier if. And we put all these things and we say, man, those things would be nice. This is why I think it's very important for us to not disconnect from the rest of the world. There's an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, which is where um, other parts of the world where it's illegal to be a Christian, they share the stories and, and the unique things that are happening with those that it's illegal to be a Christian. And if you read those stories, it starts to become a little bit reality to us that people are facing some of the most intense persecution and the unjust treatment imaginable. And then suddenly some of the things that we're going through we have a little bit of perspective. And we go, maybe I don't need to pray that I win the lottery so that I get out of debt. Maybe I need to learn some other things in that process that are more important. Maybe I don't need to pray that, uh, uh, that I win this race that I'm entering because, you know, that's clearly so important. I remember sitting with a guy named Mark Washington who used to play for the BC Lions, and he said... Uh, he was a Christian guy, and he wanted to be a pastor when he was done his football career. And so somebody asked him, about, well, how do you pray for your games? And he said, uh, he said a long time ago, he stopped praying that he would win. Because he said, there's other people on the other team that are Christians that are probably praying the same thing equally hard. And so you're just pitting each, against each other. And so he, he couldn't deal with that. 
So he said he would go out on the field and he would say, God, help me to do my best in this moment, to do my assignment. And he would pray for his brothers on the team that they would do their best and that they would remember their assignments. Had nothing to do with winning. Had nothing to do with scoring points. Had nothing to do with, God, help me make an interception here so that I can make a big play. Had nothing to do with any of those things because his perspective was different than winning a football game because he understood that that was just one day, one moment. And I think the same for us. Do we pray for those who are under persecution regularly? Do we pray for those that have physical needs that we can do something about? Do we pray and do we act on those things or do we just pretend because it's halfway across the world that we don't have to deal with it? The problem is it's not halfway across the world. It's right here in our own community. Every Tuesday and every Friday night, I'm reminded of that. Is there's plenty of people that can't afford to live here that are working like dogs to try and get everything they need and they can't. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to help? And how are we going to see them? How are we going to look at them and go, man, that is, a, that is a son or a daughter of the king. He loves them desperately and he wants them to come to salvation. And he has called me to be a disciple maker, to go and to be part of that person's journey. That's what he's focused on. That's what God's desire is for us. So we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And then there's this other kind of little verse that I misunderstood badly as a kid. For love covers a multitude of sins. I always interpreted that when I was a kid growing up. And I, don't, I couldn't tell you when, when the switch happened. But I always kind of thought it meant, well, if I, do, uh, if I love people enough, then, then I'm showing God that I love him, and so he'll kind of overlook some of my sins. There's one word for that. That's heresy. That's, uh, that's complete rubbish. Scripture teaches that the only thing that covers sin is the blood of Jesus. Second John, or First John chapter 2 talks that Jesus died for the sins of everyone in the world. He alone takes that place. So that's, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that, well, if, if I love people enough, then God will kind of over... All that is is a works-based righteousness that's no different than what the Pharisees were uh, living in, and Jesus did not speak very uh, kindly about that. Um, I think it's, it's two things here. First, when we choose to love, we will live more righteously towards others. When we choose to love people, we're going to there'll be a direct relation to how we treat other people and it'll be more godlike. Proverbs 10:12 says it this way, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Another commentator said it this way, true love covers a multitude of other people's sins. And I think that's the correct way to understand this. Is that when somebody wrongs us if we have no relationship there, we probably cry for justice a lot more quickly than if we love that person desperately and they wrong us, we're pretty quick to overlook that offense. And I think that's what it's saying here. Is, and the reason I think that is it goes back to the, the previous verses where it says, don't, like, God is judge. God is going to deal with those things. You can trust him for that. You don't need to do that. Your role is to love those who persecute you. In fact, Jesus says, love those who hate you. Love those who want the very worst for you. And if we love people that way, our perspective of them will change and we won't be calling for uh, vengeance and judgment, but we'll be calling for repentance for them because we recognize their need for Christ. Not because we're great, but because God is great. And then he ends with these couple of commands. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
I like that, that little end bit there, right? Because sometimes we have it this way. It's like, oh, we have this appointment, and we invited these people over, and oh, the house is messy, or all these things are happening, and oh, dear, can we just maybe reschedule? That's not what it says to do. Let people into the mess. Because I'm just going to tell you, life is messy. And if you pretend like everything's good all the time, all that does is create unrealistic expectations that you can never, never live up to. So here's an example. Is when I go back to my parents' place, um, and, and that's not where I grew up anymore. They've moved. Um, but when I go to their house, I don't uh, go ding the bell, kind of look in, wait for them to open the door. They open the door, I shake their hands and say, thank you for allowing me into your home. Uh, no, but I walk up, I either ding the bell or knock on the door, and I walk in because I know I'm welcome and I know I'm loved. That's the way the Christians should be with each other. We should all have this kind of open-door policy. And now I'm not suggesting that you just walk over to everyone's house, you know, crash on the couch, pop on the TV, and just watch their TV and surprise them because that is very uncomfortable. Um, and goodness knows that has happened. Uh, actually, so we keep telling our young adults that on Tuesdays, uh, oh, we have a dog that barks a lot when the doorbell rings. But if you know his name, and you just say his name, he's just like, he's happy that you're there. You could steal everything in our house, and he would just wag his tail the whole time. But, um, but so we've just told him, just, just come in and sit down. And so Shayla was sick a couple of Tuesdays ago. So she was sleeping. I was kind of downstairs dealing with getting smaller ready for bed or getting ready for bath and bed and all that kind of stuff. And, and I walked up and there was somebody just standing right there and I was like, oh, hi. And then, and then I turned the corner and then I walked upstairs and somebody was sitting on the couch. Oh, dear. And, you know, like shocking. And then I was like, you know what? That's okay. Because those people feel comfortable enough in our home that they're willing to do that. And I think that's what Scripture is telling us here. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the reason being is that we're all on the same purpose and we're all on the same mission. And that mission is to honor Christ with our life and exalt him and show people his glory. And we need each other to do that. And, and frankly, there's a lot of times where our life falls apart and where we need other people. And how comforting is it when you know you can just walk over to that neighbor's house, open the door, and just go and cry in front of them and it's okay. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's only love. Then the second command he gives, as each one has received a gift, so he's saying there's spiritual gifts that are given. Everyone has it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And then he breaks it into kind of two different categories, speaking and serving. But notice what he kind of says in the text here, and we're going to get there in just a second. But all kind of spiritual gifts that are given are basically brought down into two those two categories, you can easily do that, is whether you speak or whether you act, you are called to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. But this is the key thing with spiritual gifts, is this is not about you. This is about what God's doing through you. And so that's important. So he says it this way. If you're speaking, right? So if that's, if that's teaching, if that's encouragement, if that's the prophetic, whatever that might be, he says as each pardon me, whoever speaks, verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Another translation says, as one speaking the very words of God. Is if your spiritual gift is one that's oral, then recognize that the words that you're using to encourage or to teach or to proclaim truth over, whatever it is, those are the very words of God. That should really change how flippant we are with how quick we talk. 
if I understand, and I hope I do this every Sunday, is if I understand that these are God's words written to me, then my prayer is that these words would speak and that mine would be silent because mine are stupid and these are great. That's the reality of it. This is life-changing. This is, this is true. And so if we're speaking, don't speak to build ourselves up. Right? Like if, you're, if, you, if you say your spiritual gift is encouragement, but you only encourage other people so that they encourage you back, that's just you being selfish. When we are called to speak to other people, whatever that gift is, to speak as if these are the very oracles of God. So be careful what you say and how you say and be sure that this is of God and not of you. I know a man who somebody came over him and um, or came over to his place and, and said, you know what, God's told me that this is what your life is going to be like. And he invested in that so heavily that he lost everything. And he's still angry and bitter because God didn't do what God said he was going to do. That's an example of somebody who walked up, abused the situation, manipulated somebody into something that was not of God, but that was of him and then walked away, the beneficiary of it. All that does is make people skeptical about Christians. We're not called to tell people exactly what the will of God is in their life. In fact, we've been reading in First Peter, the will of God in your life is that you're obedient to what God's called you to do. So when somebody comes and says, Greg, I've seen this vision. This is what God wants to do in your life. That may be true. But my job is to discern it through the words of Scripture, not to just assume that everybody that tells me is true. Because people lie. People get things wrong. We misunderstand things. And so what Peter is saying is if your gift is, is a speaking, is an oral gift, then make sure that you understand it correctly. When the writers of Scripture were writing down the things that the Spirit was giving them, I just have this feeling that they weren't being real flippant with their words, but they were recognizing that this was authoritative, this was from God, and this was meant to be for people that had purpose. How much of that they understood, I don't know, but I just cannot believe that they would be flippant with that. The other aspect of those who serve, serve by the strength that God supplies. Don't serve in your own strength. Don't look at it and go, but these are my abilities. These are my skills. I want to do this for the sake of that person. All we'll do is we'll just get frustrated because it won't be good enough because we won't get to the place where we're happy with the product that we've done or with the serving that we've done or, or the conditions will have to be perfect. And all that is is that's just putting it on us saying, I want to look good. Serve with the strength that Christ provides. In other words, when you don't feel like serving, ask Christ and say, God, would you give me the strength to serve this person because they need to be served? And I can't do it right now. That's what we're called to do. And then he finishes with the reminder, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our lives are meant to bring glory and honor to Christ in all all of our actions, all of our day-to-day -day actions. Some of those maybe seem trivial things, but everything at some point points to God and to what his purpose is. And so our role is to look beyond the here and now, the long term, the, the big picture of it all, and say, God, you are doing things. You are working. You are helping. You are aiding. You are maturing. And so even though this in my life right now is so painful and I hate it so much, would you help me to have an attitude of joy because I know what it will produce? One of two things. 
this is, I said this at the beginning, I didn't give you the second part. Is it, the first part is it'll bring maturity, or the second part is it maybe will kill you, and then you get to go be with Christ. And according to Philippians, that's better by far than to stay here. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you are doing in our lives. God, there is a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, a lot of heartache. There are moments in our lives where we cannot see what you're doing and we have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And sometimes we can look at the situation, the circumstance in front of us, and we can think that there's nothing good in it. But God, we know you're a God of redemption who allows all these things so that we would grow more Christ-like. So God, would you show us? Would you help us to have an attitude, not of pessimism or an attitude of frustration, but an attitude of joy, recognizing that when this thing that we're dealing with, when this is past, that we will be either closer to you or perhaps we'll even be with you. God, that is our purpose, to glorify you with our actions. So God, would we be willing to let go of the things we don't understand? The suffering that we maybe have to face that we, that we know is unjust, would we let that go and would we surrender that into your hands, trusting that you have purpose in it? God, your ways are so much higher than our ways and how often we have to learn that. But God, would you help us to trust you more each day? God, help us to suffer and help us to suffer rightly for you. And God, as these last commands have been given to us in Scripture, may we show hospitality to one another as we love each other deeply. And as we serve one another with the gifts that you have given us, may they be about you and not about us. For those who speak, would they be very careful with the words that they use? For those that serve, help them to not do it of their own strength, but only relying on your strength to do it. God, thank you that we get to be part of your family and that you have called us to have purpose and meaning. We love you. Amen. We're just going to spend just a couple of minutes here uh, having communion together. And so the reminder in all of these things is that the only reason the only reason that we can have any of this purpose is because Jesus was willing to be obedient to the Father and be obedient ultimately to his death on the cross. And so if you're unfamiliar with communion, I'm, I'm going to read just a little short passage of scripture and we're going to hand out um, what represents the body and the blood of Christ. And, and nothing crazy happens with these elements. They're simply symbols that as we um, as we partake in them together, we remind ourselves, first of all, of the cost of our salvation. That Christ died on the cross, that he shed his blood for us, that he gave everything for us. But then also the reminder is that he is alive. and He rose from the dead, that he is coming back again. And while we discussed, we, we don't know when. It could be at any moment. And so we proclaim that together. So I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats, or, uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so this text simply reminds us to slow down. We all have stress. We all have stuff in our life that just kind of consumes us. And it's just saying, get rid of all of that. Put your focus on Christ. Remember what his death means for us. And then if there's something in our hearts that is in the, in the way between our relationship with, with God, that we would confess those things, that we would repent of those things, that we would deal with that. And then we'll eat and we'll drink together and we'll proclaim that this is not the end, but that Christ is coming back again. So I'm just going to invite the guys up who are helping with communion. We're just going to pass, uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to pass the elements out and then we'll just hold them together until the end and then we'll eat together and then we'll drink together. So let's pray. God, thank you for what Jesus Christ did on this earth. That he was obedient, that he was obedient to death even on a cross. That he was willing to do what we could not to pay the penalty for sin. So God, as we pass out the bread, as we hold it in our hands, as we consider it, may we remember the depth of your love for us that there was nothing that you wouldn't do to redeem us back to yourself. And may we be eternally grateful that Christ offered his body in place of ours. So God, as we hold this element in our hand, would you just help us to evaluate our own hearts and minds and consider what needs to be done in in our own heart. God, we love you. We thank you so much for this opportunity at salvation. Amen.
This represents Christ's body, which is broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of him. God, as we pass out the cup now, and as we're reminded that your blood and only your blood could atone for our sins, we are just so overwhelmed with your love and your grace towards us. Thank you for your blood. Thank you that it washes us clean. That when God the Father looks at us, he does not see us as these wretched sinful people that we are, but he sees you, Jesus Christ, your blood covering us. So for that we say thank you. And we proclaim that your blood had victory over sin and death. And that we can one day be with you again in eternity where all things will be made new. For this we say thank you. Amen. This represents Jesus' blood, the only forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, you are good, and we just want to surrender our lives to you. 
day by day. And so as we go from this place, as we continue our normal weekly routines, would we be always reminded of what our purpose in life is to bring you honor and glory and to proclaim your name. So God, would you direct our steps? Would you direct us this week to people that need to hear your love, people who need to experience your love? And would we be with those willing vessels to do what your will is? God, thank you. We love you. You are good. Amen. You are all uh, dismissed. There's snacks just uh, through this curtain or around the outside. If you were visiting this morning, it's our pleasure to have you. We're, we're so thankful that you are here. Make sure you get some food before you go because goodness knows free food.